Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is my medical director, Rob Dixon. Hey, good afternoon, Casey. And everybody out there watching on YouTube, I'll wave at you. Yeah, we have to wave. Yeah, so this is an episode that stems directly from a medic email sit-down discussion that I've had in the last month, actually a couple times. These things tend to come in waves. These are my favorite episodes because they're driven by real-world real world discussions, not some esoteric business. These are, these are real medic questions. And honestly, these are emergency medicine, emergency physician questions, things that we've bantered around with cases for as long as I've known you. So the question was this. At my old service, we intubated ultra patients far more often for airway protection. I've heard your stance on maintaining hemodynamic stability, but when should we intubate for airway protection? And like all good questions, I had to take a pause before I replied to the email. I had to think about what my responses were going to be, what the evidence says before I did the sit down. And really that pause has lasted for the last couple weeks. And we had an, you know, we had an in-person discussion, but even after the discussion, I was still thinking, how do we collate this together into a talk? It's a reasonable question. It's one that doesn't have clear black and white answers a lot of the times. And honestly, those are the best, those are the best kind of questions. And there's foundational themes that exist throughout the discussion of airway protection that will come and go throughout, throughout the talk. So let's get a couple things out of the way first. So not really myth busters, but just some common ground that we're going to work from here. Opinion alert. This is me. You can, you can uh, contradict if you'd like, but do not check for a gag reflex. All risk, minimal reward. And we'll get to some detail there, but the gag reflex in and of itself, to me in my own practice, personally experience watching other people do this, there are multiple other more important objective points to add to your pro and con column to aggressive airway management than sticking a tongue blade or McGill's or whatever you've got in your hand down somebody's oropharynx and, oh wait, look, they vomited. Now I, you, I would agree. Risk reward does not benefit the patient in that one, Casey. Totally so, agree. So if you're a gag checker out there, this is an opinion, but we're gonna we're gonna foundationally base this discussion on no gag reflex checking. Checking. Number two, emergent intubation is also extremely high risk, and that risk itself must be balanced with reward. And we'll expound on that some as we go through. And then number three is if the ED or anesthesiologist in our world intubate your patient that you kept hemodynamically stable, that is a 100% win. 110, couldn't and, agree more. And then lastly, we know that there is tons of gray area in the discussion of airway protection and honestly airway patency, and we'll get into that as we go through. There is one group of patients where we have pretty irrefutable evidence that hypoxia and hypotension is deleterious and that is the epic study that's the traumatic brain injury study out of arizona that tells us if you let your tbi patients become hypotensive even single episode you let them become hypoxic even single episode during the duration of your pre-hospital care then your mortality rates skyrocket you add the two together and they really skyrocket so we have to mind hypotension and hypoxia in head injury patients especially 
whether that means an endotracheal tube or not, we'll get there. We will get there. So basics, why do we intubate in the first place? Uh, Dr. Walls, Ron Walls, one of the airway gurus of emergency medicine, uh, defines the need to intubate a patient, hypoxia, hypoventilation, loss of airway patency, and anticipated clinical course is sort of the definition from his text. Brings us to a vocabulary word choice in there, and that is loss of airway patency. And my personal belief is that when we, especially when we're more novice at doing this job, being an airway manager and airway expert, the lines blur between patency and protection. And so patency to me is much more emergent than protection. A loss of airway protection is likely going to result in intubation. The question is how emergent does that need to happen and how much more stability needs to happen first? I think it's a complex clinical decision. I couldn't agree more that you have to look at the patient. You have to look at the anticipated clinical course. You have to look at what happened before you got the patient. Uh, and I think that when we speak of this, it's almost always talked about and mea culpa, right? As airway protection, when in fact, I think airway patency should be one of the variables that we look at and really focus on. Both airway patency and protection loss can lead to need for intubation for sure. Just patency is greater than protection when it comes to your urgency rate. Uh, hypoxia is easy to recognize, pulse ox, hypoventilation, pretty easy to recognize as well, or at least it should be. Respiratory rate, entitled CO2 climbing. Whether their stomach is moving up and down, yeah. get them undressed and have a look at them. Even though that we have entitled, we have eyes and a clinical exam as well. It correlates what we see in the entitled. The last piece of Dr. Wall's definition that also can become a bit blurry because what does he really mean in that definition? And he talks about anticipated clinical course. And to us as emergency physicians, that means is the patient going to the CT scanner? Does that, that means is the patient going to the OR? Are they going to a better one, the IR suite yeah. down the hall, around the corner to the other floor where there's not may or may not be an anesthetist there to look after the patient and you're in the department with another 20 patients. So, so you have to take all those things into factor and how sick is the patient and what is your risk that that patient's going to deteriorate during that procedure that they're away for during that CT scan or some other uh, medical intervention they're and, getting. And there's going to be variations of this within the EMS setting. Are you a helicopter EMS system in Western Australia with a four hour flight in front of you? Are you in an urban ground-based, you know, US EMS setting with a 10 minute transport to a trauma center? Drastically dr different approaches to whether or not that lack of airway is tenable or untenable. So gray zone there's gray gonna be zone. lots and, of gray zone and you talked about we talked about airway protection and you brought up airway patency which i really really like just coined right from dr wall's textbook how do you determine airway patency casey what are some of the things that you look for when you decide this is or is not a patent airway i had stewed over this one for a couple of days and tried to think of a way to simplify this like everything else that we do how can i remember it rather than having a random list how can we remember this more? So I came up with six S's. Strider, swelling, sonorous, singed, smashed, or just sounds weird. So strider, of course, if you hear strider, you got upper airway obstruction. 
if you've got obvious burns in your lips and your nostrils and your uh, oropharyngeal area is swollen, if it's angioedema and it's swollen, that should be a, a key that patency may be there now, but it's headed the wrong direction. Sonorous, if you hear sonorous respirations, the upper airway tissues have collapsed on themselves, that's a sign that patency is lost. Singed nasal hairs, singed beard, mustache, it's a little softer of the six, one of the softer of the six signs. But if you see singed nasal hairs and mustache beard in any of these other signs, you better be worried about patency. Smashed, that's an obvious one. If somebody gets hit in the face with a baseball bat, if there's a, a GSW to the face, for example, that should be an obvious patency evaluation and, and patency question. And then the last one is just to incorporate all the other stuff that can happen. And that's the weird garbled, you know, epiglottitis, hot potato voice goes in there. So the six S's um, is the best way I could come up with to summarize what it sounds like if you lose upper airway patency. And in that situation, loss of upper airway patency is solved by an endotracheal tube or a surgical cricothyrotomy, either one. So that is a situation where the endotracheal tube solves your problem. Pretty easy math equation. Dr. Slovis is having chest pain now because Casey's gone to the evil sixth thing other than the five things. So sorry, Dr. Slovis. We'll try to bring him back into line. Sometimes you need a six one. And (laughs) you know, you're thinking about angioedema, burns, croup in little ones, epiglottitis, obvious neck trauma. That's some of the big ones that group into the loss of airway patency patients. And these are ones that we're in an emergent situation here. They, not, they may not always warrant emergent intubation, but they warrant consideration for emergent intubation and very, very, very close monitoring. And then looking at that delta, how are they progressing? You know, severe facial burns, angioedema may start with plan C. They may start with emergency cricothyrotomy. So that's, that's patency. I took the easy one take the harder one and talk about airway protection because this is one where the old mantra lives gcs less than eight intubate right Right. it's how it's how everybody learned and not to be uh negative on on our colleagues that that teach that uh it's it's a way that we kind of classify people and we should say less than eight consider intubate but think of these other things so when when we take on airway protection it's not a one-size-fits-all. As Casey said, it's not this single piece of information. It's all those, those uh, pieces that fit together. So let's not go overboard. The general idea is that someone gets more and more and more and more visibly altered or their clinical course suggests that they're going to get worse. That's a patient that would likely benefit, risk versus benefit, for intubation. So identify those problems i'm not completely out i think that the the mantra of less than eight intubate is slowly working its way out i'm not th- i'm not throwing away the baby with the bathwater. i do think that that it has some value because it's like the coma score casey you know there's lots of studies out there that say well this is not very it's not very valid it doesn't fit that being said if you use that score anywhere on the planet it just it helps describe the basic look of a patient. Is it perfect? No, but it kind of gets us in the ballpark so we can ask those other questions or do that other neurologic exam. Like everything else, you take a single rule, GCS less than eight intubate, and you make something very black and white and concrete 
you know, there's how many words in that sentence? Not very many. And you use it to try to apply to a very complex and heterogeneous, critically ill group of patients. And it probably shouldn't be a shock that the single rule doesn't really apply to everyone. Conceptually, though, I agree with you. If someone is more altered, your intubation antenna should go up higher. That's, that, that is conceptually not false. But the strict value of eight comes into play. Is that eight fudgeable? For sure. Is there some people out there with a GCS of 12 with entire loss of airway protection? Absolutely. Are there people with GCSs of six or seven that have airway protection? Yes. And that's where the discussion is going to go. And the second piece is, you know, GCS was built for trauma. It wasn't really intended to be combined with medical patients in its inception and, and its, its meaning and its use from the beginning. So when we applied this to all patients, regardless of etiology, things became even more, even more muddy. And then lastly, the inter-rater reliability for GCS in general is notably poor. ED doc agreement on GCS in a lot of studies is less than 50%. So part of it's not the concept, it's the fact that the tool, when applied to all medical and trauma patients, which it wasn't meant for, across the board in a very heterogeneous group of patients, becomes murky. That shouldn't be a shock to anyone. But we shouldn't lose the concept of as you get more altered, you're more likely to lose airway patency. But even the answer to that question is maybe not always. The two most cited studies are from Moulton in 91 and Rotheray in 2012, so some older data. Not to bore everyone with the 30-year-old data here, but bottom line is, is that patients with a GCS less than eight, they can maintain their reflexes. Greater than eight can lose them. About 25% uh, of the patients in Rothery studies with a GCS greater than eight lost airway protection. So we need to have a more open mind. As we decrease our mental status, our antenna should go up, but we need to use more objective and subjective inputs than just the GCS, right? Right, right. and a great tangible example of this is ketamine, a dissociative dose of ketamine. When you look at ketamine, you look at the literature on how many of those patients were ultimately intubated on arrival in the emergency department. It used to be quite high, and as emergency clinicians are more and more comfortable with a low coma score or altered mental status of dis that comes with dissociation in these ketamine patients, then you see that number less and less and less and less. I, it always just boggled my mind that a patient would get a dissociative dose of ketamine, they'd be on full monitoring, they'd be rock solid stable, no aspiration risk, no patency S's, as Dr. Patrick was talking about earlier, but immediately became an emergent intubation right when they got to the emergency department, even though they've survived their 20, 25 minute EMS clinical yeah. course of care. I mean, it, I think that's getting better. It's not 100% gone. There's still people that look at one factor, altered mental status, and they think it will be fixed by a breathing tube or the patient will be made more stable by a breathing tube. So, shocker, a hard and fast rule without regard for other patient factors, it's not the best approach. We have to mind vitals, the exam, the clinical differential. Why are they altered? If a patient is actively vomiting and you throw in a depressed GCS, then of course, intubation's likely in the cards. Even the best correlation uh, between vomiting and no vomiting and aspiration risk, it's mixed. Yeah. So it's really not 
a straightforward question, so we shouldn't expect a straightforward answer. Critically ill humans don't play well with the overarchy, overarching black and white rule that's oversimplified. And that's the case. We see that across EMS care when we're dealing with undifferentiated patients. It's hard to make single sentence rules for these folks. We have to take in all of our objective and subjective inputs. Right. So I've been gray. We're not really answering the questions. So great. Who, needs, who needs intubated? Let's get black and white. When you do make that decision to intubate, right, we intubate from the most, the safest point that we can resuscitate the patient to. So DSI is now the standard of care. I believe that to be across emergency services and, and ED. Uh, we don't paralyze unstable of patients. They, they cardiac arrest. So we mind their blood pressure. We mind their oxygenation before we give a paralytic. I mean, I think that once the decision is made that the patient is going to benefit from intubation, you have to do it as safely as you can. You can have a listen to that podcast. We've done multiple uh, with different folks, but I believe that that's, that's, is the standard of care really in EMS and emergency medicine and sex going forward. And the harder part as we've taught this, and this has evolved in MCHD, we blatantly R&D, Dr. Jarvis in Williamson County, and honestly, one of the more impactful emergency medicine, definitely EMS papers in the past decade was the delayed sequence uh, bundle that they implemented at Wilco. Scott Weingart talked about delayed sequence intubation and wrote about it in the emergency department, in the ICU. These were kind of the pioneering folks. As we've continued to teach it, part of the, the struggle for me as an educator and, and a, you know, a a quality QI person reviewing these charts and trying to reconcile what we see the medics doing and what we've taught is that this resuscitation before we intubate, sometimes I feel like it's narrowed into we're only gonna resuscitate if our plan is to intubate. And my goal over the next five years or so is to try, I know we've talked about this a lot, is to try to widen that field out. In other words, if we have a hypoxic patient who is altered we may end up with an eye gel. We may end up with a bag valve mask. We may end up with an intratracheal tube. We may end up with a surgical crank. When you start with that undifferentiated patient, it's hard to know what funnel you're going to end up going down. But what we do know 100% is that things like the rule of 15s, push dose pressors, access and fluids, suction, chin lift jaw thrust, nasal pharyngeal airways, oropharyngeal airways, the basics, that entire rule of 15 bundle, no matter which funnel you end up going down, which pathway, if you start with aggressive resuscitation, you know, full monitoring, minding your end title, minding your SATs, the other pieces can fall into place. But if you just say, I'm only going to aggressively resuscitate before I'm going to intubate this patient, your blinders are on way too narrow. Open up your vision, and when you see that hypoxic alter patient, who knows where you're gonna be? but make sure that you're being as broad as you can be with the application of those aggressive resuscitation steps. Couldn't agree more, Case. You got, we have to use all the tools available in our armamentarium for airway management, and that's all the things that you talked about. So this also brings in Dr. Wall's issue of the clinical course of the patient. I'm gonna change gears here a little bit and talk about the why, and that is the question of why the patient has loss of airway reflexes. And this is a clinical piece that is very, very important from my standpoint. And this is the group of patients that probably drove me the furthest from GCS 
lesson eight intubate because I was taught that. And then as I moved through residency and through training and out as a community emergency physician, I started receiving Saturday night folks who had been out to the local pub and had a few too many pints and came to see me for their altered mentation. And the, their you know, baseline GCS sometimes after large quantities of alcohol would, have, would be a six or a seven. And some well-meaning nurse or tech would come in and say, hey, the patient in bed five is really altered. You, you need, they, do they need intubated? They might. If they start vomiting, if they become sonorous, if they, you know, their sats drop or their end tidal skyrockets, then there's other things we want to put into play. But the big difference in the alcohol intoxicated patient versus say the COVID patient is their clinical course going forward. And the alcohol intoxication patient, while we must consider trauma and secondary issues and make sure it's not more than just alcohol intoxication, not saying that, but if it is just metabolism that we're waiting on, that's gonna be a much quicker resolution than the resolution from say COVID-19 pneumonia. You have to look at the clinical course and, and it goes with every patient. As Dr. Patrick kind of, he backtracked pretty quickly. You thought he was gonna early anchor on just alcohol intoxication. He had to put in there the top five serial killers for altered mental status. Well done, doctor. Don't forget glucose, please. We're not talking about that today, but you know, the, the decision to intubate in this whole discussion, we talked about all these variables and part of that is the clinical course and what that delta or not the airline, but how, how that changes and how rapidly the changes. If you have a patient that is rapidly deteriorating before your eyes, that's one where the rule of 15s comes into place and they go right down into the airway management pathway, whether that be superglottic, uh, tracheal tube, bag valve mask, or ultimately a surgical airway. So those are the things that, that Delta is the key. That's why when you're given a scenario for a, what would I do with this airway? That's a snapshot. It's sometimes the answer is there, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes I would watch. And as a, an EMS provider, you're used to watching for less time than I have as an emergency physician, but sometimes you don't have to act on the snapshot. You can act more on the movie or the video. Sonorous, sonorous respirations, when you hear those coming on, concerning. Worsened mental status, concerning. Increased entitle. Hypoventilation, that should be concerning. Patient has a second seizure through your full dose of benzos, probably concerning. Uh, worsening cyanosis, worsening oxygenation. When those things occur together or separately, anytime that delta is going the wrong direction when you're watching the movie, that, that should really go into the, uh, the con column and should get you worried that you need to definitely apply the rule of 15s full on and be prepared. Patients with patency loss, just to hit it again, no delay in those folks unless you've not maximized your adjuncts. So I'm going to say the usual BLS airway yeah. pieces, and I, I want to change the they're, word they're basic. They're sonorous and snoring chin lift or NP airway, something non-invasive or suctioning. So sometimes the easiest interventions, we forget the foundation and kind of jump right to the sexy part, where in fact, if we were to just address the foundations, we'd be in a much better off and the so patient would be is, in a safer place. This is podcast pause. I want to submit a wording change to all of the EMS and emergency medicine textbook writers out there. If you're listeners to the MCHD paramedic podcast, I personally would like to banish 
the term basic life support and change it from BLS to FLS, foundational life support. A chin lift jaw thrust, a nasopharyngeal airway, a good proper positioning, finger sweep, those sort of things has saved countless more lives than a video laryngoscope. Not that we can't learn video laryngoscopy and use it in our practice, but the term basic to me is often misinterpreted as simple and easy to do. And I will promise you, good two-hand bag valve mask application is the most underappreciated skill that exists in emergency airway management. I will tell you that the, the delta between the people who think they can do it and the people who do it well is probably the greatest for many of those foundational skills. So aside there, I, we, we need to make sure that we're emphasizing how important those are, that they need practice, and that before we get to the fancy video scopes and the hyperangulated blades, that's all great, and I'm not knocking any of that stuff, but the foundational life support application is, is vitally important. So if you can't relieve those sonorous respirations or that strider with a chin lift in an alcohol intoxicated patients, by all means, you're probably headed towards uh, airway patency and not airway protection. So it's probably time to think and assess and move forward. What about trauma patients? Because these are the ones we started at the beginning. We talked about epic and hypotension and hypoxia. How do we reconcile the hypotension and hypoxia risks with a TBI patient to intubate them versus the risks of hypoxia and hypotension to leave them with a low GCS and unintubated? This is a really tough question to answer. It's a very tough question. There's a lot of competing factors here, right? It's not a one size fits all. I mean, you have to look at what are the initial vital signs? What is the, you know, the, the scene time that is a patient still need extricating? Um, what is their airway doing? You know, uh, so it's, it's, it's not an easy question to answer. I think you have to take all those things. It depends on the patient, right? A hypoxic, hypotensive gunshot wound to the chest with a normal voice, right, is likely not gonna benefit from an intubation. If I have a bullet wound, uh, penetrating wound in my, in my uh, thoracoabdominal area, and I am hypotensive and sweaty, and my heart rate is 170, but I'm breathing just fine, except for I'm very tachypnic and becoming more altered, I'm not dying, of, uh, a tracheal tube will not save me. Hemorrhage control and blood products will save me. Thoracostomy, thoracotomy, TXA, rapid resuscitation, a surgeon is what's going to save you in that piece. So rapid transport and minimization of scene time, TXA, tourniquet anything that needs tourniqueted, and get the patient to the surgeon. What about blunt trauma, scalp hematoma, GCS of 6, SATs of 80%, and vomiting? What do you do with that patient? You know, that's a patient I think the risk-benefit clearly is in favor of aggressive resuscitation and airway management. You, you went back to the EPIC study. We know these things are bad in TBI patients, hypotension and, uh, and hypoxemia. That's a patient. You set up full safety precautions. They get full monitoring. They get uh, suctioned, and I would DSI that patient. So let's take the hy hypotension away. Let's take the, or excuse me, take the vomiting away. Let's take the hypoxia away. So instead of a SAD of 80, let's make it a SAD of 99, no vomiting, and a GCS of 6. I think that same patient with a GCS of 6, I would focus more on fixing any hypotension and getting them to a trauma center as quick as I could with the secondary 
intent on a potential for intubation should they vomit, should they deteriorate. You know, I think that we have this idea as providers that because we can do a skill, that we always should do a skill, when in fact, you know, I have lots more resources. I have anesthetics backup in the emergency department. I have other trained providers with me that if I can't get the airway, they may be able to do something, change something uh, to safely uh, obtain uh, an airway, a tracheal tube. So ultimately we do what's in the best in interest of the patient. And sometimes that's doing nothing and putting some diesel towards getting the patient to definitive care, which is what they need is a trauma surgeon, a neurosurgeon. Let's, let's give you one more caveat on this patient. Let's say the transport time's three minutes versus 50 minutes. In yeah, a three-minute patient, that's an easy, right? You're taking them to the taking them to the neurosurgeon. Uh, I would agree, and that's always kind of a you know a medical director. You know, when you review a case and they say, "Doc, I was just around the corner," and that used to just drive me nuts. But when you think about this, sometimes that's a rational statement, right? Do you really want to stay and play with someone who may be a complex airway if you're literally? one block away from backing up into the emergency department. And I think you can make an argument, even in a medical patient, that may not be the best thing for the patient. It's, I'll go back to the beginning. If we have a patient that is taken to definitive care with hemodynamic stability managed, insured, maintained throughout our care, whether that's transport through town to the ED, whether that's management in the ED to the operating room where the anesthesiologist is standing, whether that's from the ED to the OR where the surgeon is waiting with the thoracotomy tray. If we maintain hemodynamic stability, we've done our job and we've done the service that the patients expect of us. If we decide to be aggressive and to perform a procedure and complications ensue, that's on us as well. So that's the balance between circulation, between airway and brain. And sometimes they're not clear black and white answers, but in that transport time scenario, I'll reiterate, I don't want the fact that we're three minutes away from the hospital to dissuade us from doing a life-saving procedure. If you're three minutes away from the hospital and the patient has angioedema, loss of airway patency, and falling oxygen saturations and cyanosis and altered mental status, then the cricothyrotomy needs to occur then and there. If the patient has unstable VT and their pressure is 60 and they're cyanotic and gray and you're three minutes from the hospital, you need to perform cardioversion, period. The patient needs, needs electricity. If we're three minutes away and the patient's in septic shock, they probably need drilled pressors and fluids started as we, as we transport. So both of our reluctance and our sort of recoil at the we were almost to the hospital is because classically by both paramedics and emergency physicians that sort of well it's the next person's problem has classically been used as an excuse to not act so regardless of whether the patient's going to emergent cath or not and the cardiologist is on their way in if they're in an unstable rhythm i need to convert them I shouldn't leave that for the cardiologist. So we're all as emergency providers in the same boat there. So the last one, just to circle back around, because it's important, that gunshot wound to the chest. I have been guilty early in my career of knowing that gunshot wound to the chest is going to the OR. So let's intubate them now because they're gonna get intubated in the OR. And that's the overshoot on Dr. Wall's clinical course. 
Well, yes, they may need to get intubated in the OR, but right now where they are, they probably need resuscitated first, even if they're hypoxic, even if they're altered. They need blood, they need access, they need a plan to get to the OR, but if I kill them intubating them, the surgeon never got the shot to close up the bleeding hilum or the bleeding left ventricle or wherever it is they're bleeding from. So in the end, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. It's just no surprise that a simple rule, GCS less than intubate, applies to one of the most complex emergency care decisions that we can possibly make. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Use alternation as part of your exam and part of your objective subjective columns that you're creating in your mind when you see these sick patients you're going to put in title into your equation you're going to put oxygenation and sats into your equation you're going to put level of mentation into your equation you're going to listen for the six s's for strider for sonorous for smashed for singed for those six s's you're going to listen and look for all those things and all those go into the equation so I'd leave it with don't check the gag. The risk isn't worth the reward. That's purely opinion. If you're a gag checking fool out there and you want to argue with me, uh, podcast at mchd-tx.org, feel free to uh, to let me know. Right after you leave us a five-star rating. Yeah, oh, yeah, five-star <laughs> five star rating, then argue with me. Uh, let's go through this, the S's again. Strider, swelling, sonorous, smashed, singed, and just sounds weird. Those are patency problems. Those are emergent. Protection, you probably have a little more time. Watch the delta of anything, whether that's the delta mental status, the delta sats, the delta respiratory rate, uh, the delta entitled CO2. Much, much, much more predictive, reassuring or concerning, depending on whether things are trending in the good direction or the wrong direction. Consider the cause and the course of the driver for intubation. So if the cause is a gunshot wound, and the course is hemorrhagic shock, a plastic tube between the cords is about two miles away from the problem that patient has. If the patient has angioedema and is on lisinopril and their tongue is protruding four inches from their mouth and you hear strider, then that plastic tube is probably gonna be the difference between life and death in that patient, whether that plastic tube goes through the vocal cords or is inserted proximal to those cords in the uh, cricothyroid membrane. That's life-saving. So think about the difference between life-saving and doing a procedure, like you said, just because you can. Traumatic brain injury does not tolerate hypoxia or hypotension. Make sure that we are monitoring oxygenation and uh, circulatory status when we're dealing with any traumatic brain injury patient. One episode, that's what Epic told us. One episode pre-hospital hypotension or hypoxia drastically increases our mortality. Low GCS doesn't always correlate with gag and every low GCS doesn't aspirate. So beware of putting too much stock into hard and fast statements. Look at patients with a more open mind and consider all the pieces of the puzzle. And then lastly, DSI is the law of our land here at MCHD. We feel like it should be the law of the land, period. If we were legislating, we'd legislate DSI into place for everyone. Intubation with paralysis is risky and it's not without risk of hypotension and hypoxia. So that has to be balanced in those TBI patients. Anything so, else you wanna add? No, great discussion of a difficult question. I'm glad you took this one on. I mean, we talked about this one in the clinical department. 
uh, in the office over the last couple of weeks, and, and I'm glad that we're putting this one down and, and getting it out. So please send us your feedback, send us your cases on this one. I, I, I think it's a great topic, Casey. Thanks for bringing it. As always, thanks for listening. Please send us an email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. If you want to argue, suggest, or just tell us that you appreciate the podcast or throw tomatoes or eggs electronically, whatever you'd like. As always, thanks for listening. We'll be back with everybody soon. Have a great afternoon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.